Welcome back to Come Follow Me with Fair, Faithful Answers to New Testament Questions. My name is Jennifer Roach. Today, we are going to talk about something from the New Testament that's actually something from the Old Testament, what it has to do with the Book of Mormon. <laughs> We're talking about Isaiah and why so much of it is in the Book of Mormon. The reason this topic comes up in this re week's reading is because we see Jesus going to the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Um, we get this in Luke chapter 4, 15 to 17. And it says, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went to the synagogue. And as was his custom, he stood up to read the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. A little bit edited there for, for clarity. If you have had conversations with evangelical friends or, or family members before, this topic has almost certainly come up. Why is there so much Isaiah in the Book of Mormon? And so we're going to talk about that in a couple of different ways. So first, I want to give you some understanding of, of what evangelicals mean when they're asking that question. It's a little bit different than what Latter-day Saints mean when they ask that question. We'll look at some of the answers um, you know, ways to answer their question and look at some of the things that our faith brings to this conversation that, that maybe the evangelical faith doesn't bring. So first, wh what are they asking when they're asking this? You have certainly heard church members complain, bemoan maybe about why is there so much Isaiah in the book of Mormon? But they mean it in a way that says, we already read this during Old Testament year. Why do we have to spend so many weeks on it again? It's a complaint about repetition, or maybe it's a complaint about just not liking and understanding Isaiah. It is not what an evangelical is asking when they ask you, why are there all these Isaiah chapters in the Book of Mormon? I, I'll tell you my experience. <laughs> the first time I read the Book of Mormon, I did not know what it was about. I had no idea. I, I think I've mentioned this before. I actually thought it was about the Utah period. So I opened it up not knowing the plot, and I certainly didn't know that there was Isaiah in it. I think a lot of evangelicals come from that place. Maybe, maybe a good number of them know more than I did. I sure didn't know to expect that I would get to see so much Isaiah. So I was really surprised and curious when it came along. I have always loved the book of Isaiah as I knew it in the Bible. And so it was a, a, a real curiosity to me about what is it doing here? How is it functioning inside of this larger text? What's its role? What is it? What's it doing? That's a longer conversation for another day. Um because what a lot of people reading the Book of Mormon initially think is that it's just plagiarism. Like, oh, look, here, this is straight copied right out of the Bible, um, which would be ridiculous and, and foolish as an explanation. The people certainly in Joseph Smith's day knew the Bible really well. They would pull out, they would recognize the first paragraph when they see it. Maybe the modern reader wouldn't. However, the, the textual notes, the, the chapter headings alert you to the fact you're about to read Isaiah. This comes from Isaiah chapter 42 or whatever it is. So it's not plagiarism. Um, that, that isn't what hap is what's happening with the Isaiah quotes. They're functioning inside the text actually in a way 
that worries evangelicals a little bit more than if it just were plagiarism. They they might be able to wrap their mind around that in some way. It's not what it is. Some of the deeper answers worry them more. And I want to explain to you why. Um, because what they're really asking when they ask, why is so much Isaiah in the Book of Mormon? What they're really asking is something like, aren't you just stealing scripture from the Bible to legitimize your new book of scripture? And honestly, it's a fair question. Um, they're, they're in a dilemma that goes kind of something like this. If I believe the book of Isaiah is scripture when I read it in the Bible, and here I am reading it in the book of Mormon, then I have to concede that I believe that at least parts of the book of Mormon are true that they are scripture, and I feel uncomfortable saying that because of my loyalty to the Bible. That's that's where this dilemma usually starts for them. So in order to understand a little bit deeper, we actually need to look at that word scripture. Now, for Latter-day Saints, the word scripture is a really broad word. We refer not only to our four standard works as scripture, we refer to our patriarchal blessings as personalized scripture. We treat some of the documents that aren't even officially part of our four standard works as scripture. The, the proclamation on the family, very much treated as if it were scripture, even though it's not officially in one of those books. And, and even further, we treat the words that we receive from our leaders and our prophet during general conference, we often treat those as scripture. For us, the word scripture has a lot of, it has a broad meaning. It has a lot of wiggle room in it. Um, and, and it makes sense, right? We have an open canon. We want more, 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 more. We always, we want more scripture. It's not the way it is for evangelicals, but maybe not in the way that you think. In the evangelical world, only the Old and New Testament are scripture, some of them have a little bit of fuzzy knowledge of like there were books that were in the Bible and they get taken out and they get put back in. And there's a lot of history over that. They probably a good number of them at least have a, a fuzzy understanding of that history. But mostly they just chalk that up to being part of the historical process and that we have a, a Bible now that is closed. You can see why they get nervous when material from their very carefully defined canon gets mixed in with our open canon in the service of a story that they don't know and certainly don't understand. Now, as an aside, we're going to leave out of the conversation the fact that the entire Old Testament, not just Isaiah, the entire Old Testament is included in their Christian Bible. And over the history of the last 2000 years, sometimes Jewish people whose Bible the Old Testament was first have had some things to say about that. That we're going to put that aside. It, it's in the conversation. We're not going to talk too much about it. We do need to talk about open versus closed canon and what that means, why they're so upset about that. So many Latter-day Saints have a really hard time understanding why an open canon is so troublesome to evangelicals. And, and we say something like, if God has more to say, wouldn't you want to hear it? And this is 
when something really confusing starts to happen in the conversation with evangelicals, because they do want to hear more from God, and they do believe that God speaks today, and they do believe that they get personal messages from God, as well as the idea that God speaks for larger groups, for all people who call themselves Christians today. We very much have that in common with them. Sometimes Latter-day Saints think, oh gosh, all mainstream Christians think God is done speaking. And, and that's not actually true. Evangelicals have an incredibly rich tradition of understanding that God still speaks. During my first read-through on the Book of Mormon, I really had to grapple with this. I believed that God could and did, does speak today. But my feelings got a little queasy when we started to talk about it being written down in a book. But when I formulated that into a sentence that went something like, well, God can speak today, but you can't write it down and print it in a book. I, I knew that was not a solid place to stand. It doesn't logically make sense. If God can speak, you can write it down. If you can write it down, you can put it in a book. Um, and it was surprising to me, but the question illuminates the struggle that many evangelicals have. And, and really, this is a struggle around authority. So a little bit of history is in order here. Evangelicals are a subset of Protestants, which means, as you will see, that they kind of have two strikes against the concept of authority already. Um, so you, you likely know this history. In 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 thesis to the church door, and the Protestant Reformation begins. That's not exactly how it happened historically. That's sort of the popularized version of it. It's, it's good enough for our purposes here. The Reformation results in churches that used to be under the authority of Rome now being their own authority. And it was mostly, it ends up mostly being based on country or region. So the Dutch Reformation happened very, very differently than the English Reformation. And by the end, the Dutch are governing their own church and the English are governing their own church, how they want things to be. Fast forward 500 years, and we have many churches doing this as they see fit. It's rare that churches are organized in that way, at least in the evangelical world, around countries or regions. They're organized around affinity or maybe location these days. Um, what here, here, Here's what happens. So, so evangelicals are Protestants, right? So they already have a suspicion of authority that they got handed down for the last 500 years. Protestants are protestants. Their protesting authority is essentially what that word boils down to. And if we fast, or if we, if we go back in time a little bit to American history, when the baby boom is happening, there's very much in that era, a feeling in American Christianity that the old ways are not good anymore. The modern world is what is in the old ways, the, the pre-war ways are, are not good enough anymore. And this very much included religion. Started roughly in Southern California, um, moved across the country pretty rapidly. It began with expressions um, 
of churches saying, you know, we don't want to be fuddy-duddy churches. This is not your grandma's church. We want to bring in music that we like. We want to bring in rock music and guitars and drums. And we want to allow for casual dress, a, a more relaxed service. This continues to grow um, as we move into the, the hippie era. Um, and, and pretty soon churches like this are all across the country. Um, initially, this group, they were called neo-fundamentalists not time to go into the history of why that was true, but they become what we now today know is the evangelicals. So evangelicals are not just Protestants, protesters. It, they're not just that and, and all that that entails. They're also protesters against their own religious tradition so that they could advocate for this more relaxed and formal style of worship where no one is going to tell them how to dress or what to do with their hair or how still that they need to sit in church. Um, so in this sense, they're, they're kind of double protesters and they have this double dose of a suspicion of authority. Their attitude of being suspicious of authority shows up in their theology very much. You have probably heard this from them. Um, an evangelical friend might say something like, we don't need the priesthood. We have the priesthood of all believers, right? We'll, we'll actually, we'll cover that issue much more fully in, in another video, but it's the ultimate anti-authority statement, right? Because they get to have it both ways by saying, not only is your authority not needed, but even if it were needed, we ourselves have it and we don't need anyone to tell us that we don't, right? That's the 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 ethos of what it means to be an evangelical in a lot of ways. The funny thing is, a real, if this isn't an evangelical thing, this is a very human thing, is there is a psychological principle that happens to everyone. Um, let's take the topic of like budgeting and responsible spending. Most people will look at those who spend money more freely than they do and consider them foolish maybe even reckless, that they are not good with money because they spend too freely. And then they'll look on the other side to the people who are, are saving all their money and are very, very strict with their budget. And they will think to themselves, oh, those people are too rigid. Somehow the human mind always sets itself as the exact perfect midpoint. We're, delusion we're delusional as humans, but this is what our brains do. I am the perfect midpoint. Anyone who goes too far that way is reckless. Anyone who goes too far that way is rigid. Me, I am the perfect center. And we see evangelicals doing this when it comes to authority. Um, the very ones that we can easily call double protesters, double Protestants, they look at our open canon and say, no, that's too far. You, you can't add new scripture. You are being reckless. But they also look at their fuddy-duddy grandparents and say, y'all didn't go far enough. We want to open things up. We want to free things. We want to dress how we want to dress. We want to change the nature of what worship means. We are the correct midpoint. That's what evangelicals are doing there. No shade on them. That, that's a human thing. Everybody does that. But in, but in this case, when you're having the authority conversation with them, that's what's happening. I don't tell you all of that so that you can go out and argue rea this reality with them. I tell you so that you can understand what is going on with them and why they think the way they do. 
It's actually a very human and understandable process. Instead of arguing against it and trying to convince them, you really do need proper authority, that, that introducing new scriptures is a good thing or that having an open canon is a good thing. Maybe we step back a little bit and go back to the very thing that prompted this entire discussion. What is Isaiah doing in the Book of Mormon? Or, for that matter, consider the verse that inspired this conversation. What is Jesus doing, quoting from Isaiah? Well, it, let's look at what he quotes. Here's what he says. He, he reads this out of the scroll of Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. When Jesus takes the Isaiah, he, ta he takes it out of its original context and applies it to his day. And he's doing this in a really unexpected way. Everything kind of gets flipped on its head. The poor get what's good. The prisoners get free. The blind get sight. And to be totally fair to the evangelicals, that is what their movement was about. They wanted to, to bring the experience of worship down to a level where everybody could grasp it. It, it, at least that's what it was about in the beginning. The sections of Isaiah that are in the Book of Mormon, why are they there, right? We, we, see, why, we see what Jesus is doing with them. He's going to open the gate for everybody, that, that everybody gets access to God, right? Um, when, the, when the Book of Mormon quotes Isaiah, it's there to teach us about covenant keeping, that God always keeps his side of the deal, even when we keep messing up, that there's always a path back to God. When your evangelical friend asks you, why is there so much Isaiah in the Book of Mormon? At least part of what they're asking is, do you really have the authority to add Isaiah to your book? But it's the same pattern and the same purpose that they long for in their churches that there's room for everybody, that a, a path is made. We call it a, a covenant path. They conceptualize it as everybody gets to dress how they want and listen to rock music during the church service. But at the heart, we're after the same thing. They put a huge emphasis on the gospel being for everybody, no matter what. And by including the sections of Isaiah that we do in the Book of Mormon, we are also saying that God has a path back to him. And that when we make covenants with God, he will always hold up his end of the deal. And in that sense, we want the same things. And if anything, our unique Latter-day Saint contribution to this conversation is that the path back to God is a path that is defined. It's not some something out in the ether that... It's just, you must go on a spiritual quest to find this. But no, it's very easily defined. We'll tell you exactly how to do this, how to, to get ready to make covenants, how to make covenants, how to live in your covenants, right? Like that's all we talk about. Evangelicals want a path back to God for everybody. We happen to have some specifics on how to do that. It's defined well, and there is an entire church here to support you on your path. I hope you've been enjoying these conversations um, about the New Testament. 
how evangelicals think about these things, maybe how to talk with them about it and being able to say, you know, gosh, our church actually does have some unique contributions to make to this discussion. Join us next week. We'll be taking on another question. If you have any questions that you have heard from evangelicals or that you would love to get um, a, a faithful kind of answer to, please feel free. You may contact FAIR. You may also contact me directly, Jennifer at um, FAIRLatterdaySaints.org. Would love to see your questions. Look forward to see you next time.